Welcome to the MedTech Impact Podcast, where you get to hear from leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of medical technology. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Mikuljong. And we're your hosts of the show. So today's episode, we are delighted to be joined by Ryan Myers, CEO and co-founder of Craniosense. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. We're delighted to dive a little bit deeper into the Craniosense backstory. But before we do that, we always like to kick things off and just tell us what is the problem cranial sense is looking to solve? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, accidents can happen to anyone, any place, anytime. And a really traumatic brain injury is, is one of the more prevalent. There's something like 55% of the traumatic deaths are related to uh, traumatic brain injury. As a father of two really young boys that are fairly accident prone, uh, it's terrifying to me, right? And I think what's more terrifying is that our current non-invasive tools today are essentially like 60% accurate at looking at the secondary brain damage. And so that time to treatment is something that we're really trying to essentially eliminate, right? Like, boom, you know, somebody gets an insult and you track this person, make sure that they don't have elevated pressure along the pathway so that they can have better neurological outcomes down the line. Wow, that's a big number. It's kind of hard to think when you have so much advanced technology that we still have that high statistic. Yeah, it's it's weird. You know, I you would think structural damage means elevated pressure. And it, it's just that our our brains, our bodies, we're all very different. And so somebody actually that is a little bit older, their brain actually atrophies a little bit. And so there's more space for that to that swelling and, and bleeding to go. So it actually doesn't create the pressure. So just looking at the structural damage you may get on like CT scans doesn't actually mean that there's pressure. And so we get it wrong just because we have no like reference point for like this person looks like this, acts like this. And, you know, maybe there's pressure, maybe there's not. So it's been considered the holy grail of neurosurgery for as long as I think I can remember because of those weird statistics. And can you share with the audience a little bit more about, you know, what is current best practice? How are people diagnosing? Yeah, it, it largely, you know, unfortunately depends on where you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a little bit more terrifying, like trauma accidents, they they really just happen. If you get a diagnosis for cancer, you can fly to Dana-Farber, right? Like the next day, you just be like, all right, well, let's go see the best cancer you know, doctors in the world, right? If you have a traumatic brain injury in the middle of nowhere, you're going probably to the closest hospital. Um, and then if not, you're getting flown, hopefully, to the best closest hospital. Um, but the the kind of the workflows in each of those places differ a little bit. So standard of care right now, in general, you're really supposed to come in, you get a neurological workup, you do this thing called the Glasgow Coma Scale, you kind of check how they're reacting to certain things. Are they they awake? Are they responsive? And if that is in a specific range, they get you to a CT scanner. And that CT scanner tells you, you know, if there's a bleed on board, if if it's within six hours of that bleed happening. Um, if there's some sort of structural damage, right? And then we make a call based on that. But really the only way to get to treatment of that pressure is to first diagnose it. And right now the only way to measure it is to put a hole in your head or a hole in your spine. And you kind of limit the the use case of that reasonably so, right? And and so we don't get a lot of treatment for intracranial pressure, even if it is elevated. I mean, Ryan, that obviously sounds like a pretty intense 
procedure, right, to have to have done uh, to drill a hole in your brain or your your spine, as you mentioned, you know, so I'm I'm curious, and I would imagine, you know, Richard, you know, um, we always want to know, you know, how are you seeking to then address this problem? What What is your innovation to the space? Yeah, so we're actually taking that measurement that you would typically get invasively, and we're bringing it non-invasive. And the way we're doing it is we're actually using near-infrared light to look past the skull and look at how the blood vessels are mechanically changing under what for us is an unknown pressure at that time. And then our real secret sauce is then we reference that to the blood vessels outside of your specific you know, brain and look at how your blood vessels are changing under what is a known pressure. It's atmospheric, right? And so in each one of our patients, we can create this patient-specific differential, this reference point for them. And what that does for us is it reduces intrasubject variability and removes a lot of the confounding factors that you get by just looking at the brain non-invasively. So it makes everybody their own baseline, regardless of the age, you know, the race, the cardiovascular state, medications on board, all that stuff should zero out because we look at, you know, what is a pressurized blood vessel and what is a normal pressure blood vessel. And we can make the, the assumption, the correlation to pressure that way. How did you discover the opportunity to use that infrared light technology and do this non-invasively? Yeah, so, uh, you know, for a while I was working with a group uh, at Vavonics that does early research and development under government grants. And there's a strong research group there uh, that, especially in biophotonics. And, you know, when we kind of come up with a problem set by by reaching out to to neurosurgeons and neurointensivists and, and ED docs, you know, we sit down and brainstorm a little bit and try to figure out, you know, what might work? What's, what's not working out there? Why is it not working? You know, what could we try? And I think like any good research, any good scientist, we tried a, a few different approaches and ended up kind of coming up with this idea of just looking at a very complex nervous system alone is not enough, right? We needed a point where we could say, what was this person before they got injured? What was this person uh, like, you know, if, if, we had a, if we had an EEG signal when they're healthy versus an EEG signal when they're, when they're injured, that would be amazing, but we're not going to go out and scan everybody. And so what is the difference? What are two areas that we could look at in the body that are, that are both in the brain and outside of the brain? And, uh, and how, could we, how could we approach it from that angle? So it was, a, it was a very research-oriented, like, kind of brainstorming effort. And then we went in and we tested it. And that's, you know, it was still a hypothesis-driven method. And, and turns out it worked, right? And um, we're blessed to have, you know, discovered it in that way, you know, but it was a really scientific, scientific method-driven approach. What is, I guess, the current stage then of your technology today? So since then, you know, so we we published a human feasibility study. So we have a uh, a healthy human population where we showed that yes, this method works and correlates to rises and falls in intracranial pressure, actually without having cardiovascular state kind of affecting our measurements, which was big for us. Then from there, we went in and we put the sensors on patients, traumatic brain injury patients that have those invasive sensors already placed to get a true pressure reference and to start to develop our algorithm. And we just presented at Neurocritical Care Society that uh, we have a, with our training data, 91% sensitive and 95% uh, specific. The ability to differentiate traumatic brain injury patients who have too high pressure from those who have normal pressure. 
which is which is unheard of. I kind of said the sixty percent hmm. range before. You know, in the nineties is like is like unbelievable. We're we're so excited about it, and and that's really why now we're going forward. And we spun out the company, and and you know we we have to run after this. So there's a need, and we have something that works. It would be criminal not to not to try to bring this to patients. And, and is it there? Are are they sensors? What does the product look like? Yeah, it's a it's three sensors right now so it's kind of a handheld like it's like a little you know cell phone size device with some cables coming off and then we have sensors uh, on the forehead on the earlobe and on the finger and in those three kind of sensors we technically have four i guess points that we're looking at the brain the forehead the earlobe and the finger three of those being referenced one of those being the brain where we're trying to understand what the pressure is on that on that stage we've done a lot of work in those sensors we took a, re, a technical pivot because of usability and human factors that we were gathering from the nurses that were using our device. They're like, this works, but it is hard. Right? And we're like, well, that's not that's not ideal. We're out here trying to deliver a product that can be used by anyone anywhere at any time. And you're telling us the best nurses in the world can't use it. Like that's not good. So we uh, we took a step back and we rethought kind of just the whole human factors behind it and came out and and now they love it. And and I don't think we would have had that opportunity had we not had the collaborators that we have. They, they've been amazing to us. Kyle, this is awesome. I mean, we've got this unmet need, great innovation. Um, I mean, Ryan, what, what's the plan in terms of that go-to-market strategy? Who are you targeting first? Is this for the ER or what setting are you looking at for this? Yeah, that's a great question. And and honestly, that's been one of the biggest, uh, the kind of the biggest things that we've had to pay attention to over the past year. There are so many different indications that this could be used for. And every doctor that we talk to is like, yes, I want this. And they always come up with like four things they want it for. And the four things are are usually not the same depending on kind of what they're working on, right? We're talking about like big, big words, right? Stroke, post-cardiac arrest, acute liver failure, right? I've already met it. I've already talked about traumatic brain injury, pseudotumor. Um, I was just at a um, conference last week about, uh, it's called Chiari, right? It's essentially your brain herniates down into, into your spine a little bit and it and people are just living with it, right? There's all these sorts of things that we could help with. 15% of migraines are, are supposed to be pressure related, but we can't diagnose them. So all these things. So we, we did this big customer discovery effort. We did all this. We, we I think we have like six business model canvases now, right? Mm-hmm. To try to figure out where we wanted to go first. And so the, the pain point that we are addressing first is really in the emergency room, but the emergency room in suburban and rural America, where they actually don't have any neurological neurosurgeon support on staff. So if you show up there, it's really hard to, to get a quality diagnosis and, and time stacks up, right? So that's 60 to 70% in rural America in terms of the the tools being able to diagnose elevated pressure leads to like four to seven hour triage times for these patients. And still we get it wrong about 40% of the time. So either we transfer them out and it was, you know, 40% of those patients should have been, should not have been transferred or we send them home. They shouldn't have been sent home. Right. So we're really trying to support this pain point by also bringing in key opinion leaders from the neurosurgeons at their level one trauma centers in the middle of the city. So think like University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, some of the best neurosurgeons, some of the best teams 
in the world for, for traumatic brain injury, they're at one or two hospitals in the middle of Pittsburgh, right? They also have 12 other emergency rooms with no neurosurgeon support. We need to be supporting those folks because half of the patients show up there and 6% of the, neuro, the neurologists work in those settings. So that mismatch is really what we're trying to offset by giving tools that emergency physicians and nurses can use to be able to just understand what's going on with pressure. I, I think this talks really interestingly to like a problem a lot of startups have in terms of, you know, doing customer discovery, we always, of course, recommend, but you get a lot of feedback, you get a lot of data. And so that then leads to all these different potential business models. And of course, you can't do them all. So you have to start with one. And of course, that's why you end up pivoting, because maybe that first one doesn't work. Maybe the second one doesn't work. And of course, you know, it's the last one you go with is the successful one. Yeah. Well, you hope, right? Like that's, <laughs> you hope you get to the one that works. Um, it's so easy for us to get distracted. Um, Kyle, I think you brought up sports, like kind of, kind of when we were talking before, you know, it's, it's something that I think is near and dear to both my co-founder Christian and I's heart is like, we were both athletes, you know, his kid, his kids are athletes, right? So like it, it hits home and it's something that we want to support. But in terms of workflows that we can enter today and have just like this impact that they know exactly what to do when we're like pressure high, right? We can deliver a solution to them first and then support all these other people down the line, especially after we show that everything works, right? Like, you know, once we kind of go to the emergency room, we get this credibility all of a sudden that, hey, emergency room docs are using it. It's good for us on the sideline then too, right? So we want to help everybody, but we got to start somewhere and we we have to stay focused. Yeah, You know what, Ryan, actually, and I do want to chime in real quick, Richard, because as you guys were talking, I was hearing maybe other illnesses or diseases or sicknesses, right, outside of just kind of the the sports and you know blunt force trauma and all of that but you know what I guess is that kind of what what area what is there a specific market or a specific illness disease something that you're kind of targeting them right now yes that's a great question I think you you hit two points in there one is uh, there's uh, we think internally at Craniosense that Elevated pressure is its own pathological state. It's not just the symptom that you get, right? In the same way that we treat elevated blood pressure, even though it wrecks havoc on multiple parts of your body, as kind of short-term and long-term, like we need to treat that elevated blood pressure to get it into some normal range. We think of intracranial pressure the same way internally, right? At Craniosense, we need to treat that regardless of why it pops up and where. Um, for us though, for that first condition that we really want to target, it's, it's traumatic brain injury in rural and suburban America at the emergency rooms, right? Which captures for us, a lot of people that we can help about 1.1 million patients each year that we can help have better neurological outcomes. But also it's, it's somewhere where, you know, our doctors say that they want it and they know precisely what to do with it. Right. So as a counterpoint to this, right, we're working with some great folks on potentially hydrocephalus for children, which is, which is a big need, right? Shunts occlude every, you know, something like 50% of shunts occlude within two years of getting the shunt, right? And kids are going through like a massive amount of surgery to get these undone. And when they occlude, it's, it's life-threatening, right? So they have to come in and have these emergency neurosurgeries. 
well, could we help them at home to try to differentiate what is a headache and what is an occlusion? Maybe. But the struggle is there's no tool right now that can tell you if there's pressure on the brain right now. So we're almost inventing this new vital sign. Like some of our doctors call, like they're like, oh, you're, this is like a sixth vital sign. It's like for the brain though, right? And so we have to do some of the work to get into some of those spaces, but within the ER, they kind of know, they know what to do with it, with the information we're sending. And Kyle, that's a, such a great question you brought up there. And it, and it kind of rounds to this next discussion topic around reimbursement and, and how you finally chosen, because obviously there's potential to make clear impact, but has your reimbursement pathway influenced your decision-making thinking as well? It has. Um, and, and, you know, reimbursement for any medical device is, you know, is a fun hurdle. Um, you know, we are targeting, we are applying for a breakthrough designation next year to try to kind of tap into that new, no pun intended, the TAP program. Um, but ultimately, I think what's nice for us is that uh, elevated pressure, monitoring of intracranial pressure, all that stuff is already valid in terms of neurological deficit. So like if you go and you have a traumatic brain injury, they put an invasive sensor in you because they need to know the intracranial pressure because they need to monitor it. And so we don't have to educate the community in terms of the condition we're going after. What's interesting is that the only, you know, there's only invasive means of assessing intracranial pressure today. So that's what's reimbursed. So we do have some pathway to essentially show that we are accurate against these gold standards that are reimbursed today, which our traumatic brain injury is showing, every study is showing, right? We're about 93% accurate. But all of our planned studies going forward will have all of these different endpoints packed in so that we can get reimbursement sooner rather than later. How does that relate to the regulatory pathway then um, that you're pursuing? Yeah, the regulatory pathway is, is you know, for the indication that we want to go for, so non-invasively, you know, being an adjunct to diagnosis for intracranial hypertension is really around, uh, it really needs to go down a de novo pathway, which is okay for us actually, because we have to get that clinical data to have doctors purchase our device anyway, right? To get that clinical buy-in, we need to do the same exact study. So it's really just kind of an overlap for us. We're going to do the study either way. Um, we are actually looking at some devices for the 510k pathway. It would really just bring down the risk in terms of getting through the the FDA. We wouldn't necessarily sell a device like that, but we could bring down the risk by having our base system cleared, you know, by the FDA through the 510K pathway, and then go back with our algorithm and say, oh, the algorithm is this accurate, and you should trust that it's safe and accurate based on our 510K already. So we are, that's something we're working with our regulatory partners with people much smarter than all of us in that space. So you got to bring in help externally. You can't think that you can do everything. Um, but even if you're smart enough to do it, I mean, there's there's no time to do everything, right? Even if you're experienced to do it, uh, I think it's important to know when to delegate and what to de delegate. Yes. And so it sounds like you're in a good place, but clearly a few challenges ahead of you in terms of the technology just now, you know, I, I guess looking back as well, what's changed to make this technology possible uh, and what still lies ahead in terms of improving that technology so it's ready to go to market yeah that's a great question we've we've spent a lot of time specifically on the science and the technology and biophotonics is a field that's been around for a little bit but is only now gaining significant traction we've we've only now kind of shown that it's accurate at, at doing specific things so uh 
this notion, this, the kind of the cornerstone of our initial algorithm, which has been published is pulse transit time and the differential between essentially when the pulse arrives at, you know, maybe the your forehead versus when it arrives at your brain. It's a very like fluid dynamics issue. But that has been, that's been studied for decades. Like there's papers back in the 80s, like looking at, you know, oh, might this be a surrogate for in, in non-invasive blood pressure? Right. And they're like, maybe. And then in like 2003, the same thing, they're like, we're getting better at it. Right. And so like, there's been this line of research, more basic research than anything. And now we're getting to the applied research. And now we're actually getting products. So this company just put out in 2022, they got the first device out for non-invasive cuffless blood pressure monitoring using PTT as the bedrock. Right. And so now we're starting to see these, these functionalized devices come out, which is great right? Because we haven't seen that, right? The pulse ox was kind of the only thing we had before. Now we have brain oximetry as well, which is crazy. So um, so that's really been some of the catalyst for us. And, and we have taken it now a step further and said, okay, well, PTT is nice, but it needs a calibration point. So that blood, non-invasive blood pressure monitor needs a calibration. We actually use just the differential between the two. So we don't care kind of what the underlying kind of DC static is. So we actually just look at the, the difference between the two now. And so we use two, you know, data points and that allows us to not need calibration. So that's like the next level in biophotonics for us is really make, bringing that to, to market. It's funny, Kyle, thinking about product development, because of course we think about it and we sometimes hear about this new technology that's like, wow, that's incredible. How did that come about? But of course, it's this incremental innovation that's built on you know years of research. Uh, yeah. but of course, none of this happens, I'm, I'm sure we all know, uh, without funding. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit now about you know, what's the funding landscape been like for you in the past and going forward? Yeah, wonderful question. Yeah, no startup. I mean, you can't get there without the money too, right? Uh, we've done a lot of research under... Uh, the very gracious uh, checkbook of the Department of Defense, right? Traumatic brain injury is a huge problem, especially in the in the past, you know, the, over the past two decades, right? Improvised explosive devices and things like that, concussive blasts. And so we didn't have a real great way of monitoring. And I'm not sure that we still do yet until, until Craniosense comes out in 2026. Um, and still, you know, of doing that on the front line, like in the middle of nowhere, you know, we had still these CT scanners and things like that, that you could put in hospitals, but you know, we didn't have anything for osteo medicine. And so the Department of Defense realized this and they, they've very graciously put a lot of money into early research and development to try to understand what could be possible. And we are a product of what now is possible. Right. One of the one of the research projects that we've been able to show works. So that's the bulk of our our funding so far. We do have, you know, some more recent applications into the NIH and, and we're going to put, you know, applications into, into the NSF because of how groundbreaking this this will be. But to this point, it's all been DOD. And now because we've you know, we haven't talked about too much about customer discovery and everything like that, kind of the results of our customer discovery. But. We got this immense kind of every time we would go out there, be like, yep, yep. Like I, I have a slide in our slide deck that says 95% of the doctors that we talk to or the nurses, the PAs, they're all like, yes, I would buy this, right? Which is crazy when you think about it. Usually you get like, you're like, yeah, some people, like everybody found a reason they wanted it, right? 
and it might be a different reason, but everybody wanted this. And so my co-founder and I listened to that and then we got this great data coming out. And, and so again, you know, we, we had to, like, it was, it wasn't in us to like not do this, right. We had to do this. So, you know, now we're raising a seed fund or a seed round, not a fund. That's an entirely Mm -hmm. different endeavor, but you know, we're raising a seed round to really now bring down the outstanding risk that we didn't address with the the grants, which is going after another gold standard uh, study, which is a lumbar puncture study. So we're really trying to hit all of the gold standards along the way and show that we're still accurate in a population that maybe isn't as severe as in the ICU with uh, another gold standard, which is a little bit, you know, tamer of 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 a protocol and just show that the accuracy still holds Right. And then also uh, do some regulatory work, Kyle. Right. Uh, regulatory reimbursement and uh, and then get to what is our MVP prototype. So really merging the two prototypes that we have today, our handheld and our clinical prototype. And that will really set us up well to hit execution uh, towards market once we go yeah. to the series. No, that Ryan, that's awesome, man. And I mean, Richard, just going back even before Ryan's comments and remarks here, but yeah, the development side of this, right? So important, um, you know, getting the buy-in, Ryan, that you were saying from the doctors, you know, and, and that 95% kind of, you know, acceptance or interest, right, that these doctors have in your product and and how that, you know, is obviously supporting um, your case, building a case, you know, attracting investors, um, you know, and you, now you're talking about, you know, your, your prototype right now, where you're mm-hmm. at with that. So, you know, curious, just can you maybe uh, delve a bit deeper into the, the prototype where that's at today? And, um, you know, you've mentioned your seed round, I guess, what are those those key future milestones from a product and seed round standpoint? What do those look like over the next six to 18 months? Yeah, great question. Yeah, it the milestones or the activities that I was just talking about, those are really the the short-term horizon for us, right? The 12 month right mark where we really want to get to a point where everything that we do after this, you know, this next 12 months is is execution. You know, we've taken a lot of the science out of it already because we thanks to the grants that we've had. Uh, you know, we want to take the rest of the clinical adoption risk. So how accurate are we? Right, we want to take that out. We want to get to an MVP for the clinical pro- for our prototype, such that then the rest is simply engineering and human factors. Right, just going out and making sure it all works well and in the right places, but no kind of major technical leaps that might trip up the process. Um, so our, our current prototypes are our clinical prototype. We're using it in seven, uh, I guess, eight sites now uh, across the U.S. It really just is. It looks like an ICU style device. Uh, We've been using it forever. The sensors are really well, are really mature. And we'll probably still carry that along to do research and development. And then we have a handheld device that we developed to try to get user feedback, understanding of how to you know, interact with the environments that we're going into. And so now all those lessons learned, we're merging together and, and we'll put it into our handheld MVP style prototype. And are there, oh, actually, you know what? I'd like you to maybe talk more about the clinical sites that you just mentioned. You know, where do you stand with those sites and and what are those, are these like some clinical trials and studies that are actively being done today? Yeah. Can I just add one thing to that as well? I mean, just telling the group as well, like, how does that come about? I'm sure for other people who haven't done this before, you know, just even backpedaling a little bit more to go delve into Kyle's questions as well. Yeah. So, so I'm going to have to plead the 
the fifth a little bit on on who who we're with because there's contracts with everybody and I don't want to like step in some sticky wicket over here but uh there are major sites that deal with traumatic brain injury so the majority of them are kind of level one trauma centers right because they get the patients and they're the only ones that can put in the invasive sensors honestly a lot of the how do you find them is is being where they are and talking to them right I've gone to it's it's kind of the same way I think you you might meet anybody right it's it's sales it's sales in some in some form of it you're trying to meet the people that you want to do the studies with some of it's targeted right some of it was like you know we know this person is a key opinion leader let's just reach out to them or or reach into our network to see if we can get an introduction some of it's being at the right conferences like these these guys aren't at you know guys and, and gals aren't at every conference they go to two conferences right? You need to be at those conferences. And then you just you just work the room a little bit. You just listen to people and you just, you know, you say, this is what we have. This is what we're trying to do. And we're in the fortunate situation where this is so needed that people are just like, yes, let's, we need to do research on this. I want to be a part of this. In a situation where you may be a little, maybe less novel or or your scope is a little bit narrower, being more targeted definitely helps, right? So yeah, it, it's it's a lot of legwork like anything. And it's not sales like you're selling them, right? All of these, all of these collaborations now that we have are, are relationships. I don't know if they'd consider me a friend, but you know, most of the people that, you know, I, we collaborate with now, I have their cell phone, we text, right? I, when I'm in town, I go see them. I'm not trying to like, you know, sell them anything. I'm just trying to catch up, grab a coffee, see how the family is, right? So I think it's one is meeting them, and then two is treating them the right way, right? And, and and all all that stuff works out if you just just have the relationship, I guess. Yeah, I think that talks to you know your approach and your mentality to being a good founder. You know, you are ultimately building relationships, and and you do a great job at it. And I'm sure otherwise, well, there's a myriad of you know things to be done. And I know you've mentioned your co-founder, and mm. yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about who else is involved yeah. in the company. Yeah, great question. So my co-founder, Christian, uh, you know, we've been working together for about six years now on on this tech and other neurotech together. Uh, you know, he's come from, a, started at a big business, the big business world, the big med tech world. So he was at Boston Scientific and J&J and pulled him over to the dark side of startups. Not not me specifically, but, you know, he got into a startup as the, as the third person in. Uh, to run their operations at kind of a series A level and then uh, or the research and development, I think, at that one. And then, you know, we brought we recruited him into to Vivonics. You know, from there, we just established a relationship. He's, he's very much the complement to everything that I am and I'm not. Right. So we work really well together. Again, we're friends outside of, of working together. I don't think you can really just be OK. Like you can't you can't just be neutral with your co-founder. Right. You need to like enjoy it because you know we've shared hotel rooms right we've been on long drives you know we've been sleepless well i don't know if we've been i don't know if we've not been sleepless actually so you're, you'll always be sleepless even if you have a co-founder so yeah you know you really have to be you really have to like that person and i know plenty of single founders that have tried to find co-founders and it just if you can't find one it's because you haven't found that match and you shouldn't try to force it right because having the wrong founder along beside you is probably the worst case scenario. That is that is not going to get the product over the finish line. I don't care what their skill set is. So that's, you know, it's the two of us right now. We do have our third employee earmarked, you know, uh, somebody that we've been working with for a while. And so when we 
uh, get our seed round closed, then we're going to bring them on. And then right now it's a lot of external partners, some of which we do intend to kind of bring internal. Our core competencies, certainly we we want to bring internal. But ultimately, you know, I think we'll have this network of great external partners long term because you don't need everything always, right? So you don't need the same thing. The things we need today, we're not going to need probably two years from now, right? So you want to be able to move efficiently towards market as well. So. And Carl, you know, what I love about these conversations is as much as we're discovering the future of medical technology, we get so many great insights uh, from Ryan about what it takes to build that technology as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no. And and I just love too about Ryan, your, your approach to building relationships, right? I mean, it's, you build these relationships with your doctors and these hospitals and um, you build these relationships with your, your employees and your team. And it sounds like you know, one thing that we're always interested in is, you know, how you go about finding the right talent and the right people to work with. And you can tell you spend the time up front to really understand what they're all about, what makes them tick, because, yeah, it might be great to get someone really bright and intelligent, all that. But if you're not vibing, you know, if you guys really because you're going to spend so much time together, you know, yeah. so it sounds like I really same with your customers, you're going to spend so much time together, you know. Um, you want to enjoy each other's company at the end of the day. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can you can tell that you really value those relationships. And that is so important to just building a, a, a company and a successful team. And, um, you know, I'm just curious, too. You know, a lot of times we want to ask, you know, the founders on the show to share some, you know, reflection points and help us understand you tips or, or pieces of advice, starting a medical device comp like Craniosend kind of, kind of what goes into that, you know, uh, especially for other aspiring, you know, entrepreneurs out there and people that want to develop medical technologies. I mean, are there any kind of any tips that you might recommend? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a few and, and Kyle, I think you and I talked about this a little bit, you know, actually this week and, and it's been a common thread throughout this. So I'll just hit like a, f a few different points. I mean, I, you said it, I, I think relationships are, are huge. Um, there's so many ways that a startup or a business in general can fail. And I think one of the higher ones is not, is, is somehow having a co-founder or it break down internally, culturally, and things like that, right? It's it's so hard to do it in general that you need to make sure that everybody's just sledding in the right direction, right? The same the same exact direction. And if, if they're not, that doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that they're in their point in their life, they're looking for something different. Whether that's, I've had collaborators that are looking for something different. I've then, and you know, we just had the frank conversation of like, you know, we'll work together maybe in the future on something else. Like it's not, you know, it's not that big of a deal. We're trying to do this. You're trying to do that. That's it, totally fine. You know, people that you hire, you know, people that, uh, people that you just see at every conference. Right. Um, you know, I think the relationships, the relationship thing is important because you need everybody. You need this momentum together to get you there. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time with that. And then uh, being introspective, but then also intentional. Right. And, and so what that means to me is essentially, you know, you had the hard, the hard work for anybody is it, it, if you don't have hard, if you're not a hard worker, you're not going to do a start. You may not do a startup. And if you do do the startup, then you're not going to be successful at the startup. Like there's no passive work. So you're going to have the hard work packed in, but like directing that hard work to the, to the right thing at the right time is, is so important and not getting bogged down by everything that's flying at you. Mm -hmm. 
you know, not getting distracted by the shiny thing in the corner, right? And so I really do think you have to take a step back and be introspective throughout the entire process. So my co-founder, Chris, set up, you know, we have a meeting every Monday. We have two-week sprints. Those are the things we're getting done over those two weeks. We have a slot for one some important thing that comes in in that week, and we can fit it into that slot. But otherwise, you know, we got to cut it off, right? So, so taking a step back, being being just directing your hard work at the right spot, it, you you have to. Otherwise, you're just going to be spinning your wheels. So yeah, got to be laser focused there. You know, it's oh yeah, great points. So. Really great advice. I mean, I, you know, we've covered all aspects from the product market fit to the business model fit. And then what you're talking importantly about there is the cultural fit of your team, finding the right people, building the right relationships. So I love the approach you're taking. I'd like as we close out to sort of think about the future of Cranial Sense. And for you, what's the big vision? Where would you like to see the technology in five to 10 years time? Yeah, I want to see it everywhere. That's that's a horrible thing to say is from a, from a vision perspective, but it, there's so many people we can help. I want to start in the ER with the traumatic brain injury patients, but you know we want to push out to other indications within the ER. Then we want to go to other clinical settings. So we want to go into the ICU and in, inpatient in, in as well as an EMS and go outside the hospital to outpatient primary care, right? We should be catching these people sooner. And ultimately, 10 years maybe, I don't know, it might be too soon, but I would love to be like the halter monitor for, for brain pressure, right? Being able to send this home with people, I think will be an absolute life changer for people with chronic issues. So, you know, that's it. You know, I want to, we want to be the next vital sign and we want to be everywhere. Love it. That's a great vision to have. We like to have the big picture and the big goals. That's right. You have to. Ryan, this has been a real treat, man. Um, you know, very exciting stuff, what you're working on at CranioSense, how you're going to help patients with traumatic brain injury and uh, providing better, more improved outcomes in those areas and in an effort to save lives and just make this world a better place. I mean, you're doing it and uh, you are such an incredible guy. So that organization is lucky to have you as a as a leader. And uh, we want to just thank you for coming on the show today and, and of course, wish you the very best. So thank you. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely, Kyle. Well said. And, and one last thing, of course, we want to make sure people know how to get in touch with you. What's the best way to reach out to you? I think LinkedIn is the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, otherwise, rmyers at craniosense.com is also just an easy reach out as well. Brilliant. Well, if you want to get in touch with Ryan, we encourage you to reach out and join him and help him in this mission. Awesome. All right. Well, that'll do it. want to thank you again, Ryan, and thank you everyone for tuning in today. Uh, that was another episode of the MedTech Impact Podcast. So until next time, I'm Kyle Cruz. I'm Rich Mikuljong. Keep innovating. Boom. <laughs>